0: The following lecture was given by Roger E. Stoddard, the curator of rare books at Harvard College Library on Monday the 30th of July 1990. It was entitled Deep in the Shed, a working paper from a working librarian and was the 304th Book Arts Press Rare Book School evening lecture. Good evening. Roger Stoddard has performed at this microphone and in this room in most of the ways that it's possible to perform here. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back tonight. Roger Stoddard.
1: Never have I been aware among librarians and their friends of such strong feelings of solidarity as those directed now toward Dean Robert Wedgworth and his faculty. They command our respect for their achievement and for their courage. Terry Bellinger tells me that Robin Halwuss, co-instructor with Nicholas Barker on connoisseurship this week, had asked for a talk by Stoddard as accompaniment to the formal coursework. Thank you, Robin, for liberating this gray old genie one more time, another night in the Big Apple and you do it all for books. In my youth, I was very grave and solemn, almost like Robin as you see him today. It took me a while to appreciate the comic predicament in which we find ourselves, the mug's game of getting up enough respect for books so that we can sell them or preserve them. I have admired Robin's scholarship since I met him at E.P. Goldschmidt's. Now that he has established his own business, we can see how very good he is. It is such a joy to me... When we find in his catalog a book we bought from another dealer a few years earlier, Robin's description is invariably better, pointing out many more of the book's virtues in order to justify his advanced price. <laughs> when you say connoisseurship to Stoddard, you may not get exactly what you expect. Just to balance it out, I have included. Three jokes in this talk just for Robin, so I hope that he will not be completely disappointed in it. My title comes from a composition that gives its name to a new album by the brilliant young jazz pianist Marcus Roberts. By Deep in the Shed, I take Roberts to mean a retirement for study and practice, extending himself to daunting limits in order to understand his traditions while creating and performing. New things. Should you be listening for harmony, melody, variety, and invention, try Marcus Roberts. Sometimes, when I am handling a few old books in my library, I notice from the receipt dates and book funds and subjects or genres that they must have been ordered for the library by a particular but unknown predecessor who knew good books and was able to get them, two qualities that do not necessarily coincide. Librarians are supposed to know good books and booksellers are supposed to get them. Sometimes those qualities come together, Robin Halwuss and company, or my unknown predecessor. He or she and I will never shake hands or know each other, but we have both had our hands on the same book with something of the same appreciation. Perhaps I've just acquired another book that belongs intellectually right beside it. Perhaps some unknown successor of mine will replicate the experience. But I require that he or she be convinced that their book is at least as good as mine, and I pray that it be even better." So, Robin and friends, here is a first draft of the first part of Collecting, Perseveration, the Hoarding of Objects and the Preservation of Culture, with some hints on what institutions can do, namely, Deep in the Shed, a Working Paper by a Working Librarian. A few weeks ago, I found myself on the outskirts of Omaha in a warehouse rented by the FBI. Carpeted, packed with industrial shelving, it turned out to be a library. Security was excellent. Bars on the windows, no name on the door, not even F.B.I., you would never know that it housed the most notorious collection of the season books gathered in his own special ways by Stephen J. Blumberg of Ottumwa, Iowa. What a sight they were books from libraries in California, in Connecticut, in Michigan and Oregon, Ohio and Washington State, yes, Massachusetts too. Did I explain his special ways all varieties of theft, breaking, and entering? Stealing or copying door keys? Removing or exchanging library ownership marks? Sneaking them out? There were many collections there just beginning. Railroads, ornamental hardware, city directories, Western Americana, angling. Books gathered from various libraries now side by side. Union collections of the sort you find ordinarily only on your computer screen. A collection of the future assembled from library collections of the past. Assembled, selected, just think how many books he examined in order to find the ones he wanted. That's what librarians do, isn't it? I myself have probably handled opened up studied openings in some 30,000 books this past year in order to find a few good ones for my library. Are we brothers, Stephen and I, fellow collectors beneath the obvious distinction of thief and librarian, honest citizen and criminal? It is not easy to size up a large collection in a day of work crawling or reclining in the narrow aisles of book stacks, grabbing books as fast as you can in order to identify and mark your property. There is a widener library pamphlet binding picked clean inside and out of library marks. Here is a bibliothèque bleu dance of death with only the special configuration of book dealers' descriptions pasted in to identify it as part of Widener's folklore collection, there is a familiar half-binding of green Morocco and marbled boards which signals Daniel B. Fearing's copy from the Angling collection. Is this a private collector's copy? No. Must be the crest copy. How many books that look like Widener stack copies cannot be identified as anything more than generic library thefts as shown by signs of marks removed? Often, It is a joy to look at books. Sometimes it is just a responsibility. But in Omaha, it was painful. Always in the background, the light clatter of OCLC recon junkies on long shifts and weeks, logging the books and any remaining ownership marks onto their terminals. Consider the amount of effort displaced from positive work in order to take just the first step toward returning the books to their owners to say nothing of their shelves. Librarians and their ideas of order can be the butt of jokes because we admit that the issue is basic, serious. A place for everything and everything in its place means one thing to the librarian of Wayne State, whose early Continental and English books are now in Omaha, and something else to Stephen Blumberg, who is now on house arrest in Des Moines. Stock management may have been invented by librarians. Shelf marks, shelf lists, and inventories are library systems ingrained in library mentality. You can't supply a book to a reader if you can't find it. But what does that mean? If the customer and manager can't find the merchandise, they don't make a purchase or a sale. Both go without. But in a library, without what? In the folklore of scholarship, we hear a lot about accidental discoveries echoed and reinforced by anecdotes from the science labs. Two substances fall on the floor and fuse. If they don't explode, you get penicillin. Or in the book stack, you've noticed for several days a strange volume on the return shelf. You pick it up and find an absolutely unpredictable and fresh source of insight on your current research problem. Then you go to locate the book you've just checked in the catalog. Beside it is a volume that is out of place. You open it up. More good news. Wow! If the book pages had shelved the first volume on time and the second one correctly, where would you be without two terrific books? Before we begin deducing new principles of library management, random shelving would renew the library every day, wouldn't it? We should admit that Walpole's Three Princes of Serendip rarely cross library thresholds these days, but that accidental discoveries are the wild cards of research. We should expose scholars and students to books and manuscripts in every way we can, including exhibitions, presentations, and reports. We should encourage browsing, consider the retention of outdated library classes, and construct special collections off the current standard classification schedules. Classification schedules are not designed to turn up wild cards, quite the reverse. They are constructed to show predictably related books side by side to scholars who master them. They encourage fast and efficient work free of the catalogs. They attempt to provide a place for everything, and they are the friends of browsers who cannot or will not make up their minds about books from catalog records alone. The American reader-friendly library is founded, you see, on one or another classification of knowledge partly materialized by its stock of books. Did you ever hear of a library driven to collect universal knowledge? Beginning with the Enlightenment and the work of Gertingen, libraries of all sorts have been informed and encouraged by classification schemes to do just that. Think of the impact in 1865 of J.C. Brunet's Methodic Table 31,872 books, many of them obtainable, all arranged by subject. In our time, though, the responsibility has been felt as a collaborative one, viewed nationally. The post-World War II Farmington plan was designed to secure a copy of every European book in at least one American library that accepted responsibility for its subject. Now the conspectus of the research libraries group has required American research libraries To survey their historic collections and current acquisition policies against the Library of Congress classification tables. This is bound to clarify local thinking, but its full impact will be felt nationally as cumulations of local data reveal subject gaps. As the conspectus is introduced to Europe, the impact is bound to be national. Consortia, national or not, make formal the kind of networking that union lists and catalogs suggest. Libraries in general could depend on a single library for coverage, responsibility, in a particular subject. That library could specialize, collect, and preserve for the community of libraries and scholars. That collection would be open to all scholars available for microfilming or interlibrary loan or whatever. The theoretical principle of sharing that becomes ever more formalized as circumstances become ever more desperate began when the first bibliographer publicized the location of a manuscript or printed book in a particular library. Thereafter, the book or manuscript could no longer be private preserved to its librarians and their institution as it was acknowledged in the world of learning as part of the fabric of knowledge. Manuscripts and unique books, only recorded copies, bear complete responsibility for their kind unlike books whose exemplars are strung out in libraries from the Western United States to Eastern Europe. When the manuscript or only recorded copy is misplaced or lost or decayed, the game is over, and only a few bibliographical traces remain of what was once a whole creative act. Against the findings and discussion of such influential projects, Local collections grow in libraries where support systems have been designed for them. Systems reactive to use, wear, and decay. Shelve and reshelve, charge out to readers or bindery or interlibrary loan or preservation. Trace misshelved or lost books. Collect the books and keep track of them. Something heroic about it, isn't there? Humane, fallible, impossible. Get the right book to the right person at the right time mugs game. Only good news is the advent of the computer friend to librarians and their systems and their friends who study and learn and teach and make more books. There are those who add to the store of knowledge and the fund of educated people, and there are those who subtract, who take away. Enter Stephen J. Blumberg and his gang under-supervised, over-stimulated, grab the right book with the wrong hands at the worst time. Jeffrey M. Nelson, it is said, was one of the most promising students to enter the Harvard Graduate School in history. From 1971 until 1977, he dazzled his teachers and advisors, increasing his store of knowledge but that wasn't all that he increased. In his final spring term, just before achieving the doctorate, he was discovered with cartons containing between three and 5,000 books from the Widener Stack and Boston Libraries, which were labeled to accompany him to Claremont Men's College, where he had been offered an assistant professorship. He had selected most liberally, it turned out, books and pamphlets bearing on his special topic, English constitutional history in the 18th century working away at it before the ESTCs had been removed from the open stack. The Nelson Syndrome, the removal of a whole subject collection from public use, expunges that subject from the list of local possibilities available for study and research. Book by book, the very next student of Nelson's subject together with his or her library friends would find that the cupboard was bare, and they would initiate the long and usually unsuccessful search for thief and books. Nelson's case proved divisive within the university. Librarians pressed for prosecution, but the faculty settled for withholding the degree. It was too soon for the books to be missed. Without recovering the appalling mass of them, it would have taken years to assess the loss. Would detective work have exposed Nelson? Peter Lubin, Harvard class of 1966, AM 1969, junior fellow, and Harvard Law School 1978, was another longtime graduate student enrolled for six of the nine years from 1969 until 1978. In the summer of 1988, Lubin offered for sale to the antiquarian booksellers Zimene's in New York City and David L. O'Neill in Boston several rare printed books from which most of the Widener library markings had been removed. One thing led to another until Lubin disgorged some 255 printed books and dozens of maps that had been removed from books. The books proven from Dartmouth and from several Harvard libraries, including Widener, Law, and Divinity. For the most part, Lubin's books were general rare books of the sort that special collections librarians attempt to identify and transfer from circulating collections. The books have been returned to their libraries, but the maps can never be completely identified and replaced. Lubin pleaded guilty to the felony charge of receiving stolen property and he was sentenced to three years probation on condition that he continue his psychiatric treatment. He has been barred from the libraries of the university. Having finished, I thought, this section of my talk, I was invited three weeks ago Friday to a basement storeroom in an apartment house in Porter Square where William C. Roth, PhD, 78, had left behind some five years ago, his belongings, and, as it turned out, the belongings of Widener Library, Curry College Library, and the Boston Public Library. That day, I packed my car three times with Widener books, returning with colleagues and the library van on the Monday following. Altogether, we took out some 130 cartons, leaving an even larger number behind for Curry. Years before, Widener librarians knew that they had a kind of Gallic Geoffrey Nelson on their hands, the so-called French thief. That one would clean the shelves of standard text editions of French authors and new accessions would disappear along with out of print and antiquarian sets. Colleagues would come around with lists of lost editions asking if anyone had seen even a single volume from them. It was a mistake not to have gone to the faculty over the thief. The apartment house owner told us that Curry had suspected Roth hired a detective and discovered nothing. Why didn't they go to Harvard? The effect of Roth's work is incalculable. I suspect that book selectors replaced the missing sets that were still in print, wasting their time and resources. One colleague tells me that he has received at least five requests each year for one of the sets, an early 18th century one from London. Let's face it, though. If you take 1,500 volumes out of Widener Library, three million remain behind. Curry was the greater loser. When you remove cartons of Playad editions, Oxford and Cambridge Press editions, and those series of monographs on authors from a college library, the whole teaching program is in jeopardy. Mr. Roth, last heard from in Colorado, has disappeared, leaving only his library behind to remind us, of a miseducated youth. It could have been the library of a senior professor who had invested heavily at Dr. Pangloss's and other local scholarly and OP Emporia over many years. Blumberg, his choices are a mixture of Nelson's subject-driven selections and Lubin's market-driven ones. Blumberg may have blocked serious research in Southwest American history at Claremont Pomona, the intensive study of 19th century angling literature at Harvard. Today's ecologists, by the way, find some of the observations on species useful, and teaching with examples of early printed books at the University of Southern California and Wayne State. Blumberg confined himself, in large part, to books in English, while Lubin ranged through many languages in search of rarities, plate books, and maps. In these four cases, well-rounded antiquarian booksellers and experienced special collections librarians could tell you more about the modus operandi motivation and skill of these underhanded bookmen than any number of psychiatrists would they have made good librarians could they have built research collections for others the Lubin syndrome is generic criminal activity learn the market, sneak or break in cars, apartments, offices, houses Steal what sells and sell it off. Inventory cost zero, profits 100. Somewhere between Lubin and Nelson, Blumberg, fall thieves who consume the loot, people who cash your traveler's checks or airline ticket. Then there are petty thieves who appropriate your goods for their own use and enjoyment, who steal your umbrella, your raincoat, your radio, your camera, and the potentially grand ones, felons, who steal your paintings and your books. Perhaps they will take good care of them. They may pride themselves on appreciating the goods better than those from whom they have taken them. Perhaps not. Maybe they will have to destroy or mutilate them to avoid getting caught. Stolen goods are at risk while those with rightful access are denied And thieves are responsible not only for the crimes of theft and possession, but for mutilation, deterioration, and the destruction of stolen property. There is a liability here for irreparable damage and loss, the labor of conservation work, returning inventoried articles to their original status and location. Rightful access, the rights of others. Criminal behavior is the most selfish of human activity as it deprives others of their rights. When our books are involved, we are deprived of one of the most precious rights of our heritage, the freedom to learn, to teach, and to teach ourselves. Education, above all else, teaches us to educate ourselves beyond the reading lists and assignments, freewheeling in study, both calculated and serendipitous. Librarians may not be the most selfless of citizens, but their charge is to be at least disinterested in their mission, of building and maintaining book and manuscript collections for others. That means connoisseurship with a variance that is not always understood by those for whom collections are intended. Sometimes, rarely one suspects a librarian will acquire a book for a particular scholar or project, perhaps by request. More likely, and this pertains to current publications, a librarian is predicting that a book will be called for by a certain constituency as soon as it is received. In rare book work, one is almost always acquiring a book for a scholar who is not there yet, or even better, for a diversity of scholars, none of whom has yet come by. The most powerful acquisitions are those that could be brought to bear on a multitude of subjects. Any book will tell you something, but most messages are low grade. Even thinking about the messages, high grade, rich, multiple, requires confronting the whole book. The point here is that most scholars are on a beam which leads them on a single-minded path. They glean something here, something there, a lot in another place. When a librarian hands a book to a scholar, he may have in mind a multitude of values and connotations only to be met by a very narrow response. Books being what they are, scholar and librarian could become disappointed in each other. The librarian may be seen to have acquired or the scholar to have sought the book for the wrong reason. It may not be necessary at all for a scholar to understand the whole book. Who can understand it anyhow? Have you been watching current attempts to catalog collections of medieval manuscripts? One scholar may do it quite nicely from the art historical angle, but then someone else must do it from the music historical one, another from the science historical, then another one has been working on the scriptorium, and so it goes. Old books and manuscripts are conjuries of historical witness, waiting ever so patiently to be discovered and understood. Knowledge about them accumulates in and about libraries. The joy of working with early things, books, or manuscripts is that they have stories to tell. It's like conversing with an aged adventurer, a talk with Ulysses. How did you come by that scar on your leg, old sir, and tell us whatever became of your companions? One of the most devoted friends of the Harvard Library, veteran of so many visiting committee shows and tell in which most copies of most books seem to come in via a noteworthy type designer illustrator printer annotator or two binder and owner or collector or two or three believes that Houghton library books are thicker than Widener books so that the Houghton collection one-sixth the size of Wideners on paper is actually bigger Who is to say he's wrong? For nearly 50 years, Houghton's librarians have been acquiring books one at a time for more than one reason or two or three or more reasons. In the book trade, the great teacher of us all, discovering the virtues of a book is to point out why one should buy it. Remember Robin Howes' secret weapon. He increases the number of reasons why you should buy the book at his advanced price. Every claim you make for your book increases the number of possible purchasers, the likelihood of making a sale, and the possibility of advancing the price. In a small but classic way, one of the booksellers I admired in my youth illustrates the whole thing. Not without good reason is his firm one of the specific dedicatees of the eighth volume of Bibliography of American Literature. I do not know why Edward Morrill, 1888-1962, wholesale wool trader of Boston, got into the antiquarian book business, but his first business brought him cash to invest at the bottom of the Depression. His wife told him to get his voluminous library out of their Brookline house. He rented 144 Kingston Street downtown, where he stockpiled hundreds of feet of books and pamphlets that he got from Jack Nyberg, Stanley Bizance, and Frank C. Wilson, and others and he opened shop in 1939. Above all, he was a natural bookman, I think you will agree, when I tell you that in each book he placed a small blue slip on which he had inscribed two, three, or more good reasons why it was desirable, that is, saleable. Perhaps some of you know his early catalogs on the American scene, dime novels, children's books, pamphlets, and the like, all packed with books and pamphlets that have more than one thing going for them. But all this talk of commerce and the greed of booksellers has distracted us from the poor disinterested librarian and disinterested reader. (laughs) Long ago, booksellers and librarians took responsibility for dating the undated, localizing the unsigned, correcting the misdated or missigned, and even making, collecting, indexing, and disseminating attributions of authors. Rare is a scholar who is concerned even incidentally with such things, so extensive has been the contribution of librarians and booksellers. To many librarians, the books in their libraries have been viewed as the laboratories for such studies. The model is the Incunabula collection formed by librarians at the British Museum Library. In the entire Western world of the 15th century, is there a single press or a font of type unrepresented now? What an articulate tool they have created for the whole world of scholarship and what a model for us all. Librarians starting from the books have concerned themselves with the production over the consumption of print, establishing viewpoints and modes of documentation that are rooted in scriptorium and printing house, paper, types or handwriting, and binding. Origin, origin, and origin. Where does it come from What are the other books from the same source? How can we date it? What is crucial for early things is still useful for modern ones. We have not seen the end of falsely dated, falsely signed, undated, unsigned books and pamphlets, as Mr. Barker's researches into the counterfeit books made by the poet Frederick Prokosh have shown. But where a book is coming from and what came alongside it is simply part of history, a part that library culture helps to discover. Can you imagine basing an historical or any other argument on a book or manuscript you can neither date nor place whose author you do not know or failing to acknowledge the book trade and library support systems that are trying to help you out or studying reception or readership or literary reputation or influence without bringing to bear that array of printed editions in the network of libraries to which the principles of bibliographical scholarship have been applied. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to Harvard with his Veritas speech, I set out for him all the editions of his writings that we had been collecting. Not just the Russian printings, but the Paris YMCA editions on Bible paper designed to be smuggled into Russia, and all manner of offset piracies and other printings from a variety of countries. I won't tell you what he said about the classics of Russian literature, the Liermontov and Pushkin and Dostoevsky, that were also displayed, but he said of his own work that he had never seen most of the editions before. I thought of him several years later as I packed, unpacked, and checked off the fabled collection of Henry Fielding formed by Donald Hyde when it came to the library as the gift of Lady Eccles. There was a subset of piratical editions and unauthorized continental translations, some of them unique today and many nearly so, that Fielding could never have seen agents unlicensed, unauthorized, and unknown of his words and work in parlors, libraries, coffee houses, and stages at home and abroad. I opened my panel at the Cambridge Book Trade Conference last year by remarking that several weeks before, I told my wife that I had just telephoned London to arrange a bid in Germany for a book by a Portuguese written in Latin and printed in France. We have just ordered in the Netherlands a book by another Portuguese that ought to have been printed in Italy, but the dealer couldn't figure it out. Most books, you see, come without their ISBN. Sometimes... It has to be reconstructed in the most laborious way. With some study and comparisons, I hope we can crack our new acquisition because that could be helpful to some scholar who is not here yet and to all those with whom we share our cataloging. Sometimes a librarian will acquire a book just because it is a fraud and a deceit. Someone should solve its puzzles and fixing a copy in a research library is a positive first step. None of this would mean anything to Blumberg and his gang who are glad glad to mess up a system designed for learning, discovery, and sharing. I suspect that library connoisseurs will continue to be influenced in their choices by hopes of pinning down and cracking the unknown, whether it is a text, a supplement, an erratum, or an edition, and by thoughts of stabilizing knowledge of an edition while increasing the possibility of its survival by acquiring the second or third or fourth known copy. Underlying their acquisition work are the library systems designed for making comparisons, straightening out facts and sharing findings, systems relating to the array of catalogs and book lists, that form the connective tissue for the book production and distribution systems from which the books emerged and through which they traveled and in which they may be found. It is the lists and catalogs that have inspired librarians to bring the first copy of a book to their continent, their country, or their city. The collective incunabula holdings of American libraries have been found to be representative not only of subjects and authors but also of presses in the 15th century. Surely that is the effect of the census published by the Bibliographical Society in 1919 and developed under the guidance of Margaret Stilwell and Frederick Goff. The fact that Harvard collections complement the Spanish literature and Defoe collections of the public library in Boston has to do with published catalogs. One cannot tell how Harvard mathematics collections relate to the great Bowditch collection at the public library since there is no published catalog on either side. I got some good exercise with the principal a few years ago when I began to look into Sanet Arcadia sudden-like as the Venice edition of June 152 was offered in a fresh catalog by Lawrence Witten after its brief appearance in an auction of books from Chatsworth. The copy had been brought to England by a brilliant but unsung hero of book collecting, Bishop Thomas Dampier, whose rich collection of early continental vernacular literature had been absorbed into the great family library by the sixth Duke of Devonshire in 1812. If you started with the copies of the book in the usual Italian libraries and traveled east around the globe, You would not find another copy until you got to London, and then you would be back in Italy once again. To me, the situation was tantalizing and quite unsatisfactory. We got the book fast. Arcadia is one of those breakthrough books from today to yesteryear, a brilliant fusion of bucolic characters and pastoral scenes from classical literature with modern characters, vernacular verse, and narrative. Its influence on other writers and literatures has hardly been absent for a season in the West, but before we begin a long, giddy descent into lost world, lost race science fiction, let us return to book collecting. Arcadia could stand alone as a potent work of creative genius in any library, one thinks in this country of the Huntington, Folger, Morgan, and others, but the text is a bit unstable, so one wants another edition or two. The printer worked from an early form of the manuscript text, so some of Sanitzaro's Venetian dialect survived in print. Later, Sanitzaro purified it, but it is the kind of book that makes one itchy and restless. For years, we had collected the Neapolitan imprints of Sigismund Meyer, in large part because so many of them related to the Academia Pontaniana, where Sanitzaro took his training. That had led to collecting books by other students, such as Il Careteo, Catalan author of Endymion, who scattered Provencal words in his verses. After completing a set of Meyer's edition of the Founders' Pontano's works, as it had been prepared and designed by the Academy, we persevered as far as we could go. Perhaps that branch of the collection is finished. But before we knew it, we had acquired Sir, Thomas, Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia, the first edition from 1590. Then there were 200 or so volumes of verse and other belle lettres from members of the Roman Arcadian Academy and its satellites in the 17th and 18th century. By coincidence, about that time we acquired the third known copy of the second prose tale from Shakespeare, a chapbook from one of the musical versions of The Tempest. Without mention of Shakespeare or his play, it was entitled The Force of Nature, Northampton, Rakes and Dicey. 1720 so books spread themselves out but they also aggregate in patterns and clusters that could help them to survive and to be useful best of all possible worlds not a mugs game after all wait just a minute what's the whole realm made of it's all paper And at this late date in the technology, most of it is on the thinnest and cheapest paper that the market could afford the printer. And our forefathers have passed on to us, you and me today, the legacy of their works and deeds in the environment, including the dense and inky mass of their poisoned books. If we do not intervene with the antidote, skillfully but liberally applied, whole genres and corpuses will expire flake by flake before they can even begin to be understood. That embrittling poisonous acid is worse than a band of Blumbergs, and its result requires the same diversion of library energy in response. But isn't the whole thing just a diversion anyhow? Nature plays no favorites, there are no survivors after all. Each exemplar of every species dies, whole species disappear, Godlike librarians are triaging their collections nowadays, choosing which books and manuscripts can be saved, which be permitted to extinguish themselves. Germans gave us printed books, and two German artists are showing us, both materially and metaphorically, how they will be taken away. Dieter Roth will be known to you by his kids' book and picture book, his elegant die cut overlays, his rubber stamp books and his interminable bibliographies. some of his effects, chocolate sculpture, sausages confected of printed matter, fragile joints and creases in paper, for instance, simply cannot be preserved. Like so many 20th century artists, he cares more for the creation of art and its immediate appreciation than for its study and enjoyment over time. It may be more important to replace last month's art with this month's art, like Soviet encyclopedia production in the old days, than it is to place both side by side. Anselm Kiefer, with his double whammy on the German psyche and his Jungian jabs and belly blows, won't let you off so easily. Perhaps, since there is a book about it, you know his notebook of paintings called im Fernen Osten Oder, transition from cool to hot, 1988. You begin with romantic watercolor drawings in blue and white of a passenger ship in icebergs. Intermittently from page to page, the sky heats up with reds and yellows, transforming magically into the hot blood orange flesh of a female figure, half-robed, then nude, rolling and turning, changing colors to mauves and tans, posing to show off its dappled parts across the blank background of the open double page. The editors Stebbins and Ricci carefully point out that the paper he has used is pulpy and low quality, providing the book with a sense of its own mortality. The binding is poor and the paper thin and fragile, so that each person who handles it hastens its end, just as when one touches a delicate flower." Moreover, the artist has painted the watercolors on the front and back of many pages, so it is impossible to take the book apart in order to display it. Then the editors admit that it is a book requiring us to experience it as a sequence of images. You will recall those enormous books three feet square that figured in Kiefer's Museum of Modern Art exhibition. Curators in white gloves would appear at intervals to turn the leaves slowly for you. The authentic emblem of our enterprise, however, is Kiefer's Zweistromland, the High Priestess, a library of some 200 books shelved in two heavy metal bookcases 13 feet tall. To let you know that his two rivers land is not the one of the Ohio and Mississippi, he calls the left case Tigris and the right one Euphrat. So you see that our library is situated in Mesopotamia, birthplace of civilization, perhaps not far from Nineveh, long before New York City, the first great library town. Up to three feet square and weighing up to 220 pounds, the volumes are made of leaden leaves that were subjected to chance markings by being walked on or driven over before they were bound scratched, torn, and furrowed, the leaves were then painted and daubed with all manner of material, setting off chemical reactions, including oxidation. Then on some of the pitted and marred surfaces, photographs were applied. Perhaps some of you have seen this library when it was displayed this year in New York City. The rest of us know it only from the glossy picture album, which exposes the details after taking us for an eerie journey through the deserted brickworks of Kaiser and Berger in Hipfingen near Kiefer's studio, in glaring silver and black images bled off the openings, we are confronted by pits of sandy stuff, brick floors with drains, ranges of drying racks, and finally Zwei Stromland itself as if it belonged there, followed by a steaming pool of chemicals and rods." Then, book by book, the openings are shown in grays and mauves and blues, rich colors of mud, the applied curls of hair and photographs of cities, bridges, walls, and clouds. When the beautiful end of our books? Perhaps we get our clue from the act of art, its performance, We take our joy and pride in every day when we perform well as human beings, librarians, booksellers, teachers of librarians, no matter what is bound to happen to everything and everybody that we love. Have we not been cautioned to collect our books, so to speak, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal, I did tell you, didn't I, that Marcus Roberts plays the blues?
0: those of you who are returnees or those of you who have been in session this week know that there are two exhibitions in the hallways. One called 300 and Counting is an informal history of the rise, progress, fall, and rebirth of Book Arts Press posters. There is an exhibition for this catalog, copies of which are waiting for you as you leave the room. A second exhibition, a reprise from last year, called ourselves observed, his life in the rare book program at Columbia and at Rare Book School. The precise location of Rare Book School next year is pretty easy to determine. It It will be here. The location of Rare Book School thereafter is a matter of considerable speculation, at least so far as I am concerned. I am, however, quite confident that it will be someplace and better than ever. So please stay tuned on this front. There's even a possibility that it will be at Columbia. <laughs> Down the hall, in room 511, is the <coughs> Rare Book School Notion Shop, where you can buy T-shirts, tada, mugs, and other. Uh, Book Arts Press, Rare Book School, and related and unrelated ephemera. Habitues will be as amused as I was, I'm sure, uh, to be told that last Thursday the Notion shop did nearly $700 worth of business. So many mugs. I cannot conceive of $700 worth of business being done in that shop. In one of the evaluations from week one, copies of which are in the lounge if you're interested, somebody registered as a complaint that the Notion shop wasn't open long enough. It was open for six hours, of, of, of in fact, eight hours that week. It was open three evenings plus Friday. There are only nine things to buy in the Notion shop. <laughs> So go take a look and see the cause of all this confusion. I'm sure you'll want to join Roger Stoddard for a drink in room 523. Thank you very much for coming.